Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you're joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and the culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This semester, we are going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and today's episode is chapter 14, and I couldn't decide on a title. It's either Desire Spiritual Gifts or No Girls Allowed. <laughs> I'll let you pick. Um, this is really a fun chapter um, because I think it challenges us on so many topics, so I'm really excited to dig in. Usually, I read a segment of scripture, and then we break it down, or read another segment of scripture. Paul gets really wordy in these next few chapters, and so we're not going to do it that way. I will start off reading some of the text, but it's going to be a lot of my commentary on it, and I've trusted that you have just read. Maybe uh, pause it right now, go ahead and reread it, refresh your, your memory, and then let's dig in together. So, this is chapter 14. We've been talking about spiritual gifts for a couple of weeks now. Last week, we talked about the importance above all to have love. You can have all these magnificent gifts that draw in huge crowds and wow the world. But if you don't have love, then you have nothing. And, and today, um, my study group, we're one chapter ahead. We talked on chapter 15 today. And, you know, everything that we were studying just goes back to we can build our own kingdom with the gifts God given us, and we can all do it under the banner of his name, and all that we do can be burned up on the day of judgment, or we can operate in love and solely lay down our lives for other people, serve him and him alone, build his kingdom, and on that day, on that day of judgment, every, our deeds will be tested in the fire, but they'll get to go on into eternity with us, and that's where I know all of us want to be. So... We are continuing our conversation on the gifts. Now, this is a tricky, tricky, tricky um, topic. There are some people, I mean, a huge group of people that believe that not all of these gifts are for today, that they ceased. Um, I am not in that camp, and so I'm going to be teaching through the lens that I believe that these gifts are for today, up until the last days, until Messiah comes again. And with that, I really, truly believe that there are many, many, many of us, and I put myself in this camp, that I am not pursuing these gifts like Paul is asking in the Corinthian letter. So I am going to start off by reading. Let's just go ahead and dive in. It says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and above all, that you may prophesy. And we're just going to start right here. So pursue love. We spent a long time last week talking about love. This word pursue is to follow in order to catch. Think of a hunter that is determined to catch his prey. That is how we should be chasing after love. But then he goes on to say desire spiritual gifts. And this word desire is a strong feeling of wanting. Um, it's zilu in the Greek, and it means to be deeply committed or to burn with zeal. So there should be this deep burning desire within us 
to operate in our spiritual gifts. And then he goes on to say, and above all of those that you may prophesy. So I want you to stop here and ask the question. I had to self-reflect and say, do I wake up each day? And as I am walking and growing on my Christian walk and digging into the word and praying and, and, and dreaming about the kingdom to come, am I, do I have this deep burning desire that I prophesy? And I'm being transparent with you. I don't believe that I could honestly say yes. So this has challenged me, this scripture in the past couple of weeks, meditating on this has challenged me to shift that within me and, and ask the Holy Spirit to begin to cultivate this burning desire that I prophesy. The, the word prophesy, it, it, oh, that, that can be a long message in and of itself, but um, to simplify it, it just means to speak forth, usually foretelling which reveals the mind of God. You are a voice, a mouthpiece for God. And I want us to go back to Peter's first sermon. They had just gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. They're in Jerusalem. And they are celebrating Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. And then Peter gets up with this crazy boldness that we had yet to see. And he preaches his first sermon. And in that sermon, he quotes the prophet Joel. And he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In the last days, prophecy will increase. Dreaming and visions will increase. And so we know that this is something that is going to happen. And now Paul is saying, that we should desire above all the other gifts to prophesy. Prophesy in verse three is for the strengthening of the church. This is something that we're going to talk about a little bit over and over and over again in this chapter. The purpose of it, a purpose of it in the New Testament is to strengthen the church. In fact, Paul says that the church is built on the apostles and the prophets. The apostles are the builders, the ones that go in from the ground floor but they rely on the, um, the prophets. They work hand in hand and together. Alone, they don't really accomplish much, but working together, the prophets are explaining or strengthening the church. It's an architectural term, um, this word uh, prophecy. It's O-I-K-O-D-O-M-E. It's an architectural term meaning building. It builds up the church. Paul saw the New Testament prophets as the ones who would lay that foundation. And he, we really see a shift from the Old Testament into the New Testament as the purpose of the prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament were God's mouthpiece to bring Israel as a nation to repentance. And a lot of times they were speaking warning of coming judgment if they did not repent. Now the role of the prophets switch. They're more in the church and they are giving words to strengthen and to build up the church. So he goes on to say, and I am going to read this and then we're going to just kind of talk for many verses to come. For the person who speaks in another language or in tongues is not speaking to men, but to God, since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to the people for edification or strengthening, encouragement and comfort. The person who speaks in tongues builds himself up, which that's important. But he who prophesies builds up the whole church. I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in 
tongues unless he interprets so that the church can be built. So the speaking in tongues, supernatural language. Um, it, it doesn't edify the whole church because if I broke out speaking in tongues, none of you would know what was going on. My spirit would be lifted up and built up and edified, but you y'all would just be spectators not knowing what's going on. But if I prophesied, if I was God's mouthpiece to you to build, all of you could be built up by the words of God. And so he's saying, if I have to put this on a scale, he's not saying that that person that has that gift is better, but he's saying, if I have to weigh the two gifts, pursue prophecy, because that helps the whole, that the gift of tongues just is going to edify you. Paul does wish though, he does say, I wish that everyone spoke in tongues. And he includes this because I believe it's human nature that if we hear something, oh, prophecy's better, that we will just go so far on the pendulum. We won't find balance, but we'll go all in on prophecy and we'll ignore tongues. So I don't think that that's what he's wanting to do. I think he's saying, I want to be balanced, but I don't want you to chase after tongues more than prophecy. If you have to chase after one, chase after prophecy because it builds up the whole church. Now he puts a little caveat in there. If you believe that you have a, a, a message that you're going to belt out in tongues is for the church, you better believe that that better have been from God. But I think a lot of people in their personality would, it would be ne necessary for them to feel like this is from God to be able to be bold enough to do that. I know that I'd be scared out of my mind if I felt like I was supposed to in a large congregation built out in tongues. And then you have to trust and by faith that God is going to give that interpretation to someone else and someone else will actually stand up and give the word of the Lord. So he's saying this, that, that is for the whole body and it will edify the body. And it's, it's really a neat thing. I've been in services, not very often, but a few times in my life where that has happened and it's really cool. In fact, I have a friend that was sharing with me that when she was a young girl, um, somebody spoke in tongues and she understood it, but she was so young and, and you know, like God had never used her in that way. And so she didn't give the prophecy or she didn't give the interpretation and has really always regretted it. And I don't think that I, God is such a God of grace and mercy, but, um, I just think that's neat that she had the interpretation, but I think even as an adult, I might be a little freaked out and shy, that, that would take guts to get out and say the um, interpretation. But how cool, how cool is that for that, that move of God? So he goes on to really talk about the balance. The, the important thing is that we operate in these gifts. I mean, he, he, many, many churches don't pursue the gifts. And he's saying desire these spiritual gifts. And everyone is going to have some sort of spiritual gift and they need to operate within the church because it is good. God gave you that gift to build the church up. And so this needs to be going on in the church. And it's not always paid professionals that's going to have this gift. And so we need to allow a space where these gifts can be operated. And you can feel free when you're young using your gift to, to be maybe make a mistake, you know. And so we need to allow space for people to practice and develop these gifts but the problem here is some churches ignore the gift. Like, let's talk about tongues. Paul says, prophecy's better, but I wish everyone spoke in tongues. Some churches completely ignore tongues altogether, and other churches overemphasize it. They put so much um, importance on it, more than the other gifts, and 
they will speak in tongues with no interpreter and that is not edifying the body and it can bring confusion when unbelievers come in. Paul's going to talk about that later. So again, balance. He does go on to verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in tongues. So here, hey, I speak in tongues more than any of you. It edifies my spirit. It builds me up. But I save that for my private time. I would rather speak five words to you that built you up than 10,000 in tongues. So then he goes on to say, brothers, don't be childish in your thinking, but infants in regards to evil and adult in your thinking. I kind of wrote in my own words, because sometimes I have to dumb this down for my brain, that Paul's wanting us to be mature in our thoughts, but childlike in our innocence. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah, but this is what I want to talk about. In verse 23, he says, therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues and people who are uninformed or unbelievers walk in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? There's something that I do want to address here. We've talked about this many times before, but remember that Paul is writing to a people that are used to, or their first um, religion were these mystery pagan religions that came out of Babylon. And this, these mystery religions were steeped in a culture that would have um, static utterances. They would take some sort of substance and they would just spout out things and they would almost like be in a trance and they would shake about. And it was like they were in a drunken stupor. And it was the, the un- initiated were forbidden to know the secrets of the God. These were all these mystery religions were filled with secret symbols and secret handshakes and secret ways to worship. And the draw was, hey, come be a part of us. Let us initiate you and then you can gain all this knowledge where Christianity is complete opposite. Paul is saying, hey, when these unbelievers come in, I want them to understand. I want them to know everything. This is not a secret. You don't have to be initiated to um, get to the next level of understanding. This is free for everyone who comes in. We want them to feel a part of a family and we want them to have full understanding of the mysteries of God. It's an opposite kingdom than what the devil presents. So then he really is stressing the order in these church meetings. He says, whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. So the motive behind you using your gift needs to be to build one another up, not to draw attention on yourself. This really stuck out to me because Paul is writing to them like he's just assuming, hey, Someone's going to sing a song. Someone will have a teaching. Someone will have a revelation from the Lord. Somebody's going to speak in a tongue. Somebody else will interpret. Like it is just a given that all these people are going to come in and use their gifts. I don't experience that, but I want to because this is how the church was set up. But this is hard. And I think a lot of that went away because it's just hard to navigate because you're going to have people in their flesh. You're going to, you, you, we all know that person that wants to be heard. <laughs> so my goodness, if, if they're going to be able to operate in their spiritual gift, then they're probably going to just be given words of knowledge everywhere they go. Even if it's not from the Lord, they're going to be motivated to say something because they got attention and notoriety from it. Or, you know, just it, it could create a chaotic atmosphere. And 
Paul is saying that this needs to happen. These, these gifts need to be used, but there needs to be order. And that's just difficult. And so I think people started shying away from it. And we've gotten used to now one person does the majority of the service, which is the teaching. So these gifts that he's been talking about are to build the church and the bodies of believers, and they must be used with order. There are two key elements that are different from these pagan mystery religions. There's instruction or teaching. So if you went to Aphrodite, you're not getting teaching on Aphrodite. You're just getting a lot of weird ways that she wants to be worshipped. And it's not teaching. But also, you're not getting encouraged when you go there. You're going there and you're doing simple acts to appease her so that you can reap something in return. Where in the body of Christ, they are getting sound doctrine, they're getting teaching, and they are getting encouragement. This was a new concept. But going back to him saying when you come together, somebody should sing, somebody should give a revelation, somebody should teach, somebody should speak in tongues, somebody else interpret. Enduring Word says this, Paul sees these gatherings of church time as a time for people to come together to give to one another, not merely to passively receive. We have created a culture in church where we just sit and we receive. And that is not the design of the early church. It's not the design of the heart of God. It's all of us pushing ourselves, depending on one another, using our gifts. And it's not just for the paid professionals. Dr. Constable says there's a flexibility about the order of service. So it's flexible. It's not so rigid where it's not like, you're going on the set of a movie and they say action and there's all these things that are planned out and you cannot veer from the plan. There's flexibility in the service. It was informal enough to allow any member to use their gift. Can you imagine informal enough for someone to say, hey, I, um, I think I have a word from the Lord. We have a Bible study that we have been meeting with and we are practicing these things. We're going through the book of Acts. We're, we're really trying to get to the heartbeat of what God intended um, these services to look like. And it's been so fun because our problem isn't disorder where everybody's wanting to do something. Our problem is no one has ever stepped out in their gifts in a service. And so they're a little bit intimidating. And so it's just been so fun to, um, you know, have someone say, hey, I think I'm supposed to say this today. And then everyone will just erupt with um, applaud and encouragement when they actually do step out and use their gift. Again, he wants all of this to be done in an orderly way. And a, a lot of what we're skipping over is him stressing that there has to be order. This cannot be confusing because if unbelievers come in and it's just chaos and no order, how does that build them up? So let's get to the good part. In verse 32, let me go back to 33. He ends that segment by saying, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God is a God of order and stability and peace. So we cannot have these wild, crazy services, but we do need our services informal enough to allow members of the congregation to operate in their gifts. Scary stuff. Challenging, not scary. Challenging. Okay, then he goes in to say, and as in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive, says the law, 
as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church meeting. Did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to, or did it come to you only? Wow, this is some pretty harsh words. And Paul is not a fan, or the feminist movement is not a fan of Paul. Here's a couple of things, just in my own reflection before I really dug into studying. In chapter 11 of this very text, Paul talks about women prophesying in the church and how they need to have their head covered if they do so. So this seems like a contradiction. A couple chapters ago, we're talking about prophesying, and all of a sudden now we're saying women be silent. That does not make sense. We also have to look at scripture as a whole, which we're going to do that today. Um, we can't just read this as a standalone segment of verses and say it trumps everything else. So let's look at scripture as a whole. Also, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm not going to say it. I'm going to wait and then I'll say it at the end. So we're going to look at the gifts. That That's one of the things that's like Paul has been listing these gifts and saying pursue. And he didn't say men pursue these gifts. He is addressing everyone and he's saying we need to pursue and desire these gifts. So apostle is one of the gifts. Well, in Romans 16, Paul writes, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow pioneers. They are outstanding among the apostles. Well, that's interesting. Junia is outstanding among the apostles. You know what else is interesting? For the past couple of hundred years, Junia has been masculinized. The, um, the translators have turned her name masculine because I think it just solves their problem. When men should be silent in the church, this doesn't make sense. So let's make Junia a man. But if we go back and look at early church fathers and scrolls that have been found since the past couple of hundred years, it is clear that Junia is a female. And the early church fathers, um, Christendom, Origen, Jerome, all refer to her as female and an apostle. So we know that females can be apostles. The next, prophets. In Acts 2, in that famous first sermon of Peter that I've already addressed, it says your sons and daughters will prophesy that. I was going to get ahead of myself. That's what I wanted to bring up. So that's interesting. Paul's saying women, when they prophesy, wear something over their head. Peter is saying your sons and daughters in the last day will prophesy. Well, what about women being silent in the church? That is not adding up. In Acts 21, Philip the evangelist has four daughters who all prophesied. That's recorded in Acts. Miriam, which was Moses' sister, is seen to be a prophet. We know that the Jewish people saw her as a prophet because Micah chapter 6 alludes that she is. Deborah one of the judges was a prophetess. Isaiah 8 mentions a prophetess that he wanted to go see, and Anna in Luke 2 is a prophet. There are tons of prophetesses. Guess what prophets have? Prophetesses, prophetic people, what they have to do, they have to speak. They are speaking as a spokesperson for God. We see evangelists in the Old Testament. Phoebe, found in Romans, um, Judea, and Sinatiki in Philippians. I probably butchered her name, but in Philippians, there are two ladies that are evangelists. We see pastor teachers in Priscilla. Priscilla, in the four out of the six mentions of her name in Paul's letters, she's mentioned first, and that means that she was more influential and had a um, higher standing among the people. 
and there's the lady of second John, other ladies in ministry, just in the New Testament, Chloe, Lydia, and Nymphia, they all hosted a church in their home. So this does not match up with what we are reading. So we have to go do further investigation. One of the things we have to do is ask ourselves, what is going on in this town? Um, there, we already know, was a cult, a women's cult, Aphrodite, where there were women priestesses that were running the show. There were men involved, but they were just, they, they follow, they fell under the leadership of the women. So that's interesting. Tuck that in the back of your head. So I recently read a book called The Handmaiden's Conspiracy. It was on this topic. It's written by a woman, and she did an excellent job of finding historical, um, uh, uh, historical things and biblical things and from early church fathers to write how uh, and explain her take on this verse. And it's by Donna Howell, if you want to check that out. If that, it's a good read. But... I, while I enjoyed that, I wanted to go a step further and say, what would a biblical scholar like N.T. Wright say? Very conservative, and um, I just love him to pieces. And so I looked up, I started reading what he, and I actually found a lecture that he was invited to on, um, on this very thing. And so a couple of things that he said off the cuff was that um, just off the his his thinking immediately on what could Paul possibly mean? Well, he knows that Jesus chose twelve men to be his his main core. He, Jesus had many disciples, but then there were the twelve. They were the people that he ate, slept, breathed with for three years on a daily basis, and they all flee. And the disciples that were left that actually went and found Jesus, they were the first ones to see his resurrected body were all women. And he said that Mary Magdalene and the others are seen in early church history to be the apostles to the apostles. So the early church fathers had no problem recognizing these women to be the apostles of the apostles. He also said in the Mary Martha story that in the West, you know, we look at it as um, that it's okay. We, as women, we don't have to be so busy in the kitchen. It's okay to rest and spend time with Jesus. He said in the East, them hearing that story, immediately their first thought would have been, what? A woman is allowed amongst the men to learn. That's what they would have seen. They would have seen liberation as a woman being allowed to learn and to sit and to take in at the feet of Jesus amongst a, a, a slew of men. This is Mary step, stepping past social conventions. So, he says he takes this and then everything that I had mentioned, other examples in scripture as a whole to say, okay, this seems to contradict with everything else, so what could be going on? So he ends up talking about two scholars because he said this wasn't his specialty. He wasn't an expert in this, but he did go and prepare and, and you know, he had his own thoughts, but he wanted to talk about the scholarly work of Gordon Free who writes, and other scholars agree with him, so there's a school of thought that this was this section of verses was later and non-Pauline, and it was an interpolation. It got stuck in the letter later. It wasn't something that Paul wrote. So that could be a, a an idea. 
I really enjoyed, I'm not saying that, oh, I like this version, so this is what I'm going with, but it, I found very interesting Ken Bailey's work. He wrote an Oxford paper on this. And he explains that in this day, and I'm sure some of you read this, I came across a lot of it, but he tied it together where I could understand it more, is that the men and the women would sit on opposite sides of the room. We used to do that in children's church. Girls on the side and boys on the side. Well, they did that in church. The service would be held in the proper language of the day. And in this culture, the women would not have been schooled or educated in the proper language. The services would not be held in the common dialect. So the women typically would only know the common dialect. So it would be as if we went to a service and it was only Latin for a long time. So the men usually were educated and did know the classical language. So I love how N.T. Wright pictures it. Ladies, just imagine with me, we're in a service and the men are on the side and it's all of us. We get to sit together and the service is going to go on. The teaching is going to go on for an hour, two hours, three hours, and it's all in Latin. What are we going to do? We are going to start talking and we're going to get louder and louder and louder. In fact, I have been at a conference where there was a lot of prayer time in between segments and my small group was the one that kept getting called out. We have bonded so much that we all sat together. I was working it, so I, it wasn't me. <laughs> I, I'm just teasing. But I had to look back and literally it kind of melted my heart because they kept being shushed, but I was like, look what God has done. He's formed such a family. And when we get together and we love one another, we are going to talk and we're going to get louder and louder and louder. So he said, can you imagine that the leader of the church is going up and having to shush the women because they're talking because they don't understand the language. And so <coughs> this is more the tone that N.T. Wright, and he got that from Ken Bailey, believes that this is that Paul is saying, hey, ladies, y'all are going to have to be quiet because remember, this whole chapter is about order in the service. We've got to have order. We can't have y'all talking so loud that nobody can hear the pastor. And when you get home, that would be the time that you can talk to your husband. Don't shout across the aisle, hey, Brad, what does that mean? D don't do that. Don't, don't do, and don't talk to your friends because you're bored. We've got to have order. So when you get home, take a chance, sit down with your husband, and y'all have a little recap. That makes sense to me. This is all about order and not chaos. He goes on, N.T. Wright, and I wrote this direct quote from him, that men and women, need. he was speaking to a conference on gender equality in the church. And so while he doesn't believe that these certain tricky verses are there to suppress women and that they're not allowed to speak, he also talked about the danger that the women's liberation has come and said, we can do everything a man can do and we can do it better. God so beautifully gave women certain um, mannerisms, characteristics, skill sets, and then he gave men their own. And it is to complement each other in such a beautiful way. Eve was Adam's helpmate. It didn't say that she was there, his slave. It was his helper. Don't, don't you love whenever you have to work on a project for you to have somebody that you love to come and help you? And maybe they have a different skill set that, oh, thank goodness they're here. This goes, this blends so perfectly. And so we shouldn't try to be men. We should just embrace our womanhood, but men shouldn't suppress the women. We're, we're equally human. We just have different characteristics and gifts and attributes. And so 
N.T. Wright said, women and men need to be their own truly created selves to honor God by being what they were created and celebrating it, not blurring the lines. I stand with him. Okay, so then he takes a look at um, another tricky verse found in 1 Timothy. I'm going to read it because I want to find the parallel between the two. There's another place where Paul is telling women to zip it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, it says, oh, he says, a woman should learn in silence with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent. For Adam was created first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Now, I taught this a long time ago, and I don't remember how I taught it. I didn't um, really go back and um, study that, but N.T. Wright brought up this segment as well. One of the things he pointed out is we are reading through a lens that women are absolutely free to study. And so we read that first sentence, a woman should learn in silence and full submission. That's where we put the emphasis. But he said in that day where women weren't allowed to go to school, they wouldn't have known the, the, the official um, classic language that here we could also read it differently and say a woman should learn. Mary should sit at the feet of Jesus with the men. She should be able to be allowed at that thing. And of course, in full submission and under, I, I, I'm not saying, because God has an order. With everything, he has an order. And man, there's God, there's Jesus. Man submits to him and woman to him. So he's not saying to mess up the order, but he's saying, my goodness, women can go and they can learn. This was also interesting. So there's these two places where there's the trickiness. Women are told to be quiet, to zip it. Can't help but look at the culture of both of these towns. We, we just talked about Corinth where we had the women, the woman cult worship of Aphrodite. Well, guess what's in Ephesus? This letter to Timothy is in Ephesus. You have another woman cult worship center, and it is Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. And in these cults, they were almost cutting edge where women really didn't have rights and they were property and stuff in this world. All of a sudden, these cult worship centers were, were brought up and women would rule the show. The men were to be subservient to the women and they would run everything. So again, what N.T. Wright was believing was happening Let me, let me look because I want to say this, is that everywhere the gospel went, it, it, it liberated women and it elevated them to be basically have basic human rights. And so what he believes Paul is doing in these two particular towns, we can't take this outside of the context. He's only saying it in Corinth and Ephesus that, hey, women need to be silent and they need to submit under the men and stuff, is that he is saying, hey, women can learn. They can have spiritual gifts. In fact, I want in the service for all of this to happen. But what I'm not saying is for you to, like, they don't have any examples of this. I mean, men have always ruled the show. So the only example they have where women has risen to power is Artemis and Aphrodite, those are the only two examples. So what he doesn't want is for them to go, oh, okay, we've seen that over here. Yeah, the men fall under subservient to the women and the women run the show. He's So what he's trying to do is balance it out. Women have rights. They should use their gifts. They should be able to learn. But hey, 
we need to still keep this in balance. Remember, God has an order and there's a man, the man is supposed to be the spiritual covering for the woman. It's really a beautiful thing how God designed it. I love and appreciate that I have a spiritual covering. So I am going to read this, how he said it and make sure just for clarity, because sometimes my words can be more confusing than scholars. Um, he said, it's as if Paul was saying to this tiny brand new Christian movement, because of the gospel, our old ways, our old organized ways of worship have to be rethought. Women can learn and study, but what I'm not saying is to follow the examples of the pagan world that has done this. I hope that makes sense. Um, again, well, if, if you, you can agree to disagree, it's okay. You're not going to change my mind and maybe I'm not going to change yours, but for, for people out there that were like, wow, I struggle with this and I don't like Paul. When I read this, it's not misogynistic. It's re it really is him saying, hey, women have rights, but you can't cause disorder and disruption in the service, and you can't get out of God's order where men is supposed to be, that men are supposed to be the head, and we are supposed to fall under their covering. I do want to close with the last segment of the text, verse 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. So he's saying, hey, if you feel like you have this gift, I'm about to write you something that is from the Lord, not from Paul. But if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid any speaking in tongues. So we started off the chapter. Pursue love desire spiritual gifts above all prophecy and he closes with be eager to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking of tongues but everything must be done decently in order i hope that this challenged all of us today maybe there's some of you that have been using the spiritual gifts and it has created chaos and confusion and you need to rethink how you operate in those gifts. Maybe some of you haven't pursued these spiritual gifts at all and you feel convicted and you're going to start pursuing them. Maybe some of you have um, had these gifts and not known how to use them or when is appropriate time. Speak to your leaders. Speak to your pastor um, and and ask, like, hey, how, how do I develop this? What do I do with this spiritual gift? Um, what I know is that God wants them to be used. He wants us to pursue them, but... There always has to be order. It cannot be chaos. And women, you don't really have to be silent. Just don't don't interrupt and cause a commotion in church. Um, this has been fun. Next week, we'll do 15 and 16. I'm just going to put those together. Paul is very wordy about the resurrection. And so we're going to do a lot of just talking overview about it instead of going verse by verse. And then we'll wrap up the closing in it. It's been a great semester. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'll see you later. Happy reading. Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you're joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and the culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This semester, we are going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and today's episode is chapter 14, and I couldn't decide on a title. It's either Desire Spiritual Gifts or No Girls Allowed. <laughs> I'll let you pick. Um, 
this is really a fun chapter um, because I think it challenges us on so many topics. So I'm really excited to dig in. Usually I read a segment of scripture and then we break it down or read another segment of scripture. Paul gets really wordy in these next few chapters. And so we're not going to do it that way. I will start off reading some of the text, but it's going to be a lot of my commentary on it. And I've trusted that you have just read, maybe uh, pause it right now, go ahead and reread it, refresh your, your memory, and then let's dig in together. So this is chapter 14. We've been talking about spiritual gifts for a couple of weeks now. Last week, we talked about the importance above all to have love. You can have all these magnificent gifts that draw in huge crowds and wow the world. But if you don't have love, then you have nothing. And, and today, um, my study group, we're one chapter ahead. We talked on chapter 15 today. And, you know, everything that we were studying just goes back to we can build our own kingdom with the gifts God given us, and we can all do it under the banner of his name. And all that we do can be burned up on the day of judgment, or we can operate in love and solely lay down our lives for other people, serve him and him alone, build his kingdom. And on that day, on that day of judgment, every our deeds will be tested in the fire, but they'll get to go on into eternity with us. And that's where I know all of us want to be. So we are continuing our conversation on the gifts. Now, this is a tricky, tricky, tricky um, topic. There are some people I mean, a huge group of people that believe that not all of these gifts are for today, that they ceased. Um, I am not in that camp. And so I'm going to be teaching through the lens that I believe that these gifts are for today, up until the last days, until Messiah comes again. And with that, I really, truly believe that there are many, many, many of us, and I put myself in this camp, that I am not pursuing these gifts like Paul is asking in the Corinthian letter. So I am going to start off by reading. Let's just go ahead and dive in. It says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts and above all that you may prophesy. And we're just going to start right here. So pursue love. We spent a long time last week talking about love. This word pursue is to follow in order to catch. Think of a hunter that is determined to catch his prey. That is how we should be chasing after love. But then he goes on to say desire spiritual gifts. And this word desire is a strong feeling of wanting. Um, it's zilu in the Greek. And it means to be deeply committed or to burn with zeal. So there should be this deep burning desire within us to operate in our spiritual gifts. And then he goes on to say, and above all of those that you may prophesy. So I want you to stop here and ask the question. I had to self-reflect and say, do I wake up each day? And as I am walking and growing on my Christian walk and digging into the word and praying and, and, and dreaming about the kingdom to come, and I, do I have this deep burning desire that I prophesy? And I'm being transparent with you. I don't believe that I could honestly say yes. So this has challenged me, this scripture in the past couple of weeks, meditating on this has challenged me to shift that within me and, and ask the Holy Spirit to begin to cultivate this burning desire that I prophesy. The, the word prophesy, it, it, oh, that, that can be a long message in and of itself, but um, to simplify it, it just means to speak forth, usually forth telling 
which reveals the mind of God. You are a voice, a mouthpiece for God. And I want us to go back to Peter's first sermon. They had just gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. They're in Jerusalem. And they are celebrating Pentecost and the Holy Spirit falls on them. And then Peter gets up with this crazy boldness that we had yet to see. And he preaches his first sermon. And in that sermon, he quotes the prophet Joel. And he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In the last days, prophecy will increase dreaming and visions will increase and so we know that this is something that is going to happen and now paul is saying that we should desire above all the other gifts to prophesy prophesy in verse three is for the strengthening of the church this is something that we're going to talk about a little bit over and over and over again in this chapter the purpose of is a purpose of it in the new testament is to strengthen the church in fact paul says that the church is built on the apostles and the prophets the apostles are the builders the ones that go in from the ground floor but they rely on the um the prophets they work hand in hand and together alone they don't really accomplish much but working together the prophets are explaining or strengthening the church. It's an architectural term. Um, this word uh, prophecy, it's O-I-K-O-D-O-M-E. It's an architectural term meaning building. It builds up the church. Paul saw the New Testament prof prophets as the ones who would lay that foundation. And he, we really see a shift from the Old Testament into the New Testament as the purpose of the prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament were God's mouthpiece to bring Israel as a nation to repentance. And a lot of times they were speaking warning of coming judgment if they did not repent. Now the role of the prophets switch. They're more in the church and they are giving words to strengthen and to build up the church. So he goes on to say, and I am going to read this and then we're going to just kind of talk for many verses to come. For the person who speaks in another language or in tongues is not speaking to men, but to God, since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to the people for edification or strengthening, encouragement and comfort. The person who speaks in tongues builds himself up, which that's important. But he who prophesies builds up the whole church. I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church can be built. So the speaking in tongues, supernatural language. Um, it, it doesn't edify the whole church because if I broke out speaking in tongues, none of you would know what was going on. My spirit would be lifted up and built up and edified, but you, y'all would just be spectators, not knowing what's going on. But if I prophesied, if I was God's mouthpiece to you to build, all of you could be built up by the words of God. And so he's saying, if I have to put this on a scale, he's not saying that that person that has that gift is better, but he's saying, if I have to weigh the two gifts, pursue prophecy because that helps the whole that the gift of tongues just is going to edify you 
Paul does wish, though, he does say, I wish that everyone spoke in tongues. And he includes this because I believe it's human nature that if we hear something, oh, prophecy's better, that we will just go so far on the pendulum. We won't find balance, but we'll go all in on prophecy and we'll ignore tongues. So I don't think that that's what he's wanting to do. I think he's saying, I want to be balanced, but I don't want you to chase after tongues more than prophecy. If you have to chase after one, chase after prophecy because it builds up the whole church. Now he puts a little caveat in there. If you believe that you have a, a, a message that you're going to belt out in tongues is for the church, you better believe that that better have been from God. But I think a lot of people in their personality would, it would be ne necessary for them to feel like this is from God to be able to be bold enough to do that. I know that I'd be scared out of my mind if I felt like I was supposed to in a large congregation built out in tongues. And then you have to trust and by faith that God is going to give that interpretation to someone else and someone else will actually stand up and give the word of the Lord. So he's saying this, that, that is for the whole body and it will edify the body. And it's, it's really a neat thing. I've been in services, not very often, but a few times in my life where that has happened. And it's really cool. In fact, I have a friend that was sharing with me that when she was a young girl, um, somebody spoke in tongues and she understood it, but she was so young and, and you know, like God had never used her in that way. And so she didn't give the prophecy or she didn't give the interpretation and has really always regretted it. And I don't think that I, God is such a God of grace and mercy, but, um, I just think that's neat that she had the interpretation, but I think even as an adult, I might be a little freaked out and shy, that, that would take guts to get out and say the um, interpretation. But how cool, how cool is that for that, that move of God? So he goes on to really talk about the balance. The, the important thing is that we operate in these gifts. I mean, he, he, many, many churches don't pursue the gifts. And he's saying desire these spiritual gifts. And everyone is going to have some sort of spiritual gift and they need to operate within the church because it is good. God gave you that gift to build the church up. And so this needs to be going on in the church and it's not always paid professionals that's going to have this gift. And so we need to allow a space where these gifts can be operated and you can feel free when you're young using your gift to, to be maybe make a mistake, you know? And so we need to allow space for people to practice and develop these gifts. But the problem here is some churches ignore the gift. Like let's talk about tongues. Paul says prophecy's better, but I wish everyone spoke in tongues. Some churches completely ignore tongues altogether and other churches overemphasize it. They put so much um, importance on it more than the other gifts and they will speak in tongues with no interpreter and that is not edifying the body and it can bring confusion when unbelievers come in. Paul's going to talk about that later. So again, balance. He does go on to verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in tongues. So here, Hey, I speak in tongues more than any of you. It edifies my spirit. It builds me up, but I save that for my private time. I would rather speak five words to you that built you up than 10,000 in tongues. So then he goes on to say, brothers, don't be childish in your thinking, but infants in regards to evil and adult in your thinking. I kind of wrote in my own words, because sometimes I have to dumb this down for my brain, that 
Paul's wanting us to be mature in our thoughts, but childlike in our innocence. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah, but this is what I want to talk about. In verse 23, he says, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues and people who are uninformed or unbelievers walk in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? There's something that I do want to address here. We've talked about this many times before, but remember that Paul is writing to a people that are used to, or their, their first um, religion were these mystery pagan religions that came out of Babylon. And this these mystery religions were steeped in a culture that would have um, static utterances. They would take some sort of substance and they would just spout out things and they would almost like be in a trance and they would shake about and it was like they were in a drunken stupor and it was the the uninitiated were forbidden to know the secrets of the god these were all these mystery religions were filled with secret symbols and secret handshakes and secret ways to worship and the draw was, hey, come be a part of us. Let us initiate you, and then you can gain all this knowledge. Where Christianity is complete opposite. Paul is saying, hey, when these unbelievers come in, I want them to understand. I want them to know everything. This is not a secret. You don't have to be initiated to um, get to the next level of understanding. This is free for everyone who comes in. We want them to feel a part of a family, and we want them to have full understanding of the mysteries of God. It's an opposite kingdom than what the devil presents. So then he really is stressing the order in these church meetings. He says, whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. So the motive behind you using your gift needs to be to build one another up, not to draw attention on yourself. This really stuck out to me because Paul is writing to them like he's just assuming, hey, Someone's going to sing a song. Someone will have a teaching. Someone will have a revelation from the Lord. Somebody's going to speak in a tongue. Somebody else will interpret. Like it is just a given that all these people are going to come in and use their gifts. I don't experience that, but I want to because this is how the church was set up. But this is hard, and I think a lot of that went away because it's just hard to navigate because you're going to have people in their flesh. You're going to, you, you, we all know that person that wants to be heard. <laughs> so my goodness, if, if they're going to be able to operate in their spiritual gift, then they're probably going to just be given words of knowledge everywhere they go. Even if it's not from the Lord, they're going to be motivated to say something because they got attention and notoriety from it. Or, you know, just it, it could create a chaotic atmosphere. And Paul is saying that this needs to happen. These, these gifts need to be used, but there needs to be order. And that's just difficult. And so I think people started shying away from it, and we've gotten used to now one person does the majority of the service, which is the teaching. So these gifts that he's been talking about are to build the church and the bodies of believers, and they must be used with order. There are two key elements that are different from these pagan mystery religions. There's instruction or teaching. So if you went to Aphrodite, you're not getting teaching on Aphrodite. You're just getting a lot of weird ways that she wants to be worshipped. And it's not teaching. But also, you're not getting encouraged when you go there. You're going there and you're doing simple acts to appease her so that you can reap something in return. 
where in the body of Christ, they are getting sound doctrine, they're getting teaching, and they are getting encouragement. This was a new concept. But going back to him saying when you come together, somebody should sing, somebody should give a revelation, somebody should teach, somebody should speak in tongues, somebody else interpret. Enduring Word says this, Paul sees these gatherings of church time as a time for people to come together to give to one another, not merely to passively receive. We have created a culture in church where we just sit and we receive, and that is not the design of the early church. It's not the design of the heart of God. It's all of us pushing ourselves, depending on one another, using our gifts, and it's not just for the paid professionals. Dr. Constable says there's a flexibility about the order of service. So it's flexible. It's not so rigid where it's not like, you're going on the set of a movie and they say action and there's all these things that are planned out and you cannot veer from the plan. There's flexibility in the service. It was informal enough to allow any member to use their gift. Can you imagine informal enough for someone to say, hey, I, um, I think I have a word from the Lord. We have a Bible study that we have been meeting with and we are practicing these things. We're going through the book of Acts. We're, we're really trying to get to the heartbeat of what God intended um, these services to look like. And it's been so fun because our problem isn't disorder where everybody's wanting to do something. Our problem is no one has ever stepped out in their gifts in a service. And so they're a little bit intimidating. And so it's just been so fun to, um, you know, have someone say, hey, I think I'm supposed to say this today. And then everyone will just erupt with um, applaud and encouragement when they actually do step out and use their gift. Again, he wants all of this to be done in an orderly way. And a, a lot of what we're skipping over is him stressing that there has to be order. This cannot be confusing because if unbelievers come in and it's just chaos and no order, how does that build them up? So let's get to the good part. In verse 32, let me go back to 33. He ends that segment by saying, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God is a God of order and stability and peace. So we cannot have these wild, crazy services, but we do need our services informal enough to allow members of the congregation to operate in their gifts. Scary stuff. Challenging, not scary, challenging. Okay, then he goes into saying, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive, says the law, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church meeting. Did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to, or did it come to you only? Wow, this is some pretty harsh words. And Paul is not a fan, or the feminist movement is not a fan of Paul. Here's a couple of things, just in my own reflection before I really dug into studying. In chapter 11 of this very text, Paul talks about women prophesying in the church and how they need to have their head covered if they do so. So this seems like a contradiction. A couple chapters ago, we're talking about prophesying. And all of a sudden now we're saying women be silent. That does not make sense. We also have to look at scripture as a whole, which we're going to do that today. Um, 
we can't just read this as a standalone segment of verses and say it trumps everything else. So let's look at scripture as a whole. Also, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm not going to say it. I'm going to wait and then I'll say it at the end. So we're going to look at the gifts. That, that's one of the things. So it's like Paul has been listing these gifts and saying pursue. And he didn't say men pursue these gifts. He is addressing everyone and he's saying we need to pursue and desire these gifts. So apostle is one of the gifts. Well, in Romans 16, Paul writes, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow pioneers. They are outstanding among the apostles. Well, that's interesting. Junia is outstanding among the apostles. You know what else is interesting? For the past couple of hundred years, Junia has been masculinized. The, um, the translators have turned her name masculine because I think it just solves their problem. When men should be silent in the church, this doesn't make sense. So let's make Junia a man. But if we go back and look at early church fathers and scrolls that have been found since the past couple of hundred years, it is clear that Junia is a female. And the early church fathers, um, Christendom, Origen, Jerome, all refer to her as female and an apostle. So we know that females can be apostles. The next, prophets. In Acts 2, in that famous first sermon of Peter that I've already addressed, it says your sons and daughters will prophesy that. I was going to get ahead of myself. That's what I wanted to bring up. So that's interesting. Paul's saying women, when they prophesy, wear something over their head. Peter is saying your sons and daughters in the last day will prophesy. Well, what about women being silent in the church? That is not adding up. In Acts 21, Philip the evangelist has four daughters who all prophesied. That's recorded in Acts. Miriam, which was Moses' sister, is seen to be a prophet. We know that the Jewish people saw her as a prophet because Micah chapter 6 alludes that she is. Deborah one of the judges was a prophetess. Isaiah 8 mentions a prophetess that he wanted to go see, and Anna in Luke 2 is a prophet. There are tons of prophetess. Guess what prophets have? Prophetess, prophetic people. What they have to do? They have to speak. They are speaking as a spokesperson for God. We see evangelists in the Old Testament. Phoebe, found in Romans. Um, Judea and Sinatiki in Philippians. I probably butchered her name, but in Philippians, there are two ladies that are evangelists. We see pastor teachers in Priscilla. Priscilla in the four out of the six mentions of her name in Paul's letters. She's mentioned first, and that means that she was more influential and had a um, higher standing among the people. And there's the lady of second John. Other ladies in ministry, just in the New Testament, Chloe, Lydia, and Nymph Nymphia, they all hosted a church in their home. So this does not match up with what we are reading. So we have to go do further investigation. One of the things we have to do is ask ourselves, what is going on in this town? Um, there, we already know, was a cult a women's cult, Aphrodite, where there were women priestesses that were running the show. There were men involved, but they were just, they, they follow, they fell under the leadership of the women. So that's interesting. Tuck that in the back of your head. So I recently read a book 
called The Handmaiden's Conspiracy. It was on this topic. It's written by a woman. And she did an excellent job of finding historical um, uh, historical things and biblical things and from early church fathers to write how uh, and explain her take on this verse. And it's by Donna Howell, if you want to check that out. If that, it's a good read. But... I, while I enjoyed that, I wanted to go a step further and say, what would a biblical scholar like N.T. Wright say? Very conservative, and um, I just love him to pieces. And so I looked up, I started reading what he, and I actually found a lecture that he was invited to on, um, on this very thing. And so a couple of things that he said off the cuff was that um, just off his his thinking immediately on what could Paul possibly mean? Well, he knows that Jesus chose twelve men to be his his main core. He, Jesus had many disciples, but then there were the twelve. They were the people that he ate, slept, breathed with for three years on a daily basis, and they all flee. And the disciples that were left that actually went and found Jesus, they were the first ones to see his resurrected body, were all women. And he said that Mary Magdalene and the others are seen in early church history to be the apostles to the apostles. So the early church fathers had no problem recognizing these women to be the apostles of the apostles. He also said in the Mary Martha story that in the West, you know, we look at it as um, that it's okay. We, as women, we don't have to be so busy in the kitchen. It's okay to rest and spend time with Jesus. He said in the East, them hearing that story, immediately their first thought would have been, what a woman is allowed amongst the men to learn. That's what they would have seen. They would have seen liberation as a woman being allowed to learn and to sit and to take in at the feet of Jesus amongst a, a, a slew of men. This is Mary step, stepping past social conventions. So he says he takes this and then everything that I had mentioned, other examples in scripture as a whole to say, okay, this seems to contradict with everything else. So what could be going on? So he ends up talking about two scholars because he said this wasn't his specialty. He wasn't an expert in this, but he did go and prepare and, and, you know, he had his own thoughts, but he wanted to talk about the scholarly work of Gordon Free, who writes, and other scholars agree with him. So there's a school of thought that this was this section of verses was later and non-Pauline, and it was an interpolation. It got stuck in the letter later. It wasn't something that Paul wrote. So that could be a, a an idea. I really enjoyed, I'm not saying that, oh, I like this version, so this is what I'm going with, but it, I found very interesting Ken Bailey's work. He wrote an Oxford paper on this. And he explains that in this day, and I'm sure some of you read this, I came across a lot of it, but he tied it together where I could understand it more, is that the men and the women would sit on opposite sides of the room. We used to do that in children's church. Girls on the side and boys on the side. Well, they did that in church. The service would be held in the proper language of the day. And in this culture, the women would not have been schooled or educated in the proper language. The services would not be held in the common dialect. So the women typically would only know the common dialect. So it would be as if we went to a service and it was only Latin for a long time. 
So the men usually were educated and did know the classical language. So I love how N.T. Wright pictures it. Ladies, just imagine with me. We're in a service and the men are on the side and it's all of us. We get to sit together and the service is going to go on. The teaching is going to go on for an hour, two hours, three hours, and it's all in Latin. What are we going to do? We are going to start talking and we're going to get louder and louder and louder. In fact, I have been at a conference where there was a lot of prayer time in between segments and my small group was the one that kept getting called out. We have bonded so much that we all sat together. I was working it, so I, it wasn't me. I, I'm just teasing. But I had to look back and literally, it kind of melted my heart because they kept being shushed, but I was like, look what God has done. He's formed such a family. And when we get together and we love one another, we are going to talk and we're going to get louder and louder and louder. So he said, can you imagine that the leader of the church is going up and having to shush the women because they're talking because they don't understand the language. And so... <coughs> This is more the tone that N.T. Wright, and he got that from Ken Bailey, believes that this is, that Paul is saying, hey, ladies, y'all are going to have to be quiet because remember, this whole chapter is about order in the service. We've got to have order. We can't have y'all talking so loud that nobody can hear the pastor. And when you get home, that would be the time that you can talk to your husband. Don't shout across the aisle, hey, Brad, what does that mean? Don't do that. Don't don't do and don't talk to your friends because you're bored. We've got to have order. So when you get home, take a chance, sit down with your husband, and y'all have a little recap. That makes sense to me. This is all about order and not chaos. He goes on, N.T. Wright, and I wrote this direct quote from him that men and women need. He was speaking to a conference on gender equality in the church. And so while he doesn't believe that these certain tricky verses are there to suppress women and that they're not allowed to speak, he also talked about the danger that the women's liberation has come and said, we can do everything a man can do and we can do it better. God so beautifully gave women certain um, mannerisms, characteristics, skill sets, and then he gave men their own and it is to complement each other in such a beautiful way. Eve was Adam's helpmate. It didn't say that she was there, his slave. It was his helper. Don't you love whenever you have to work on a project for you to have somebody that you love to come and help you? And maybe they have a different skill set that, oh, thank goodness they're here. This goes, this blends so perfectly. And so we shouldn't try to be men. We should just embrace our womanhood, but men shouldn't suppress the women. We're, we're equally human. We just have different characteristics and gifts and attributes. And so N.T. Wright said, women and men need to be their own truly created selves to honor God by being what they were created and celebrating it, not blurring the lines. I stand with him. Okay, so then he takes a look at um, another tricky verse found in 1 Timothy. I'm going to read it because I want to find the parallel between the two. There's another place where Paul is telling women to zip it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, it says, oh, he says, a woman should learn in silence with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent. For Adam was created first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Now, I taught this a long time ago, and I don't remember how I taught it. I didn't um, really go back and um, study that. But N.T. Wright 
brought up this segment as well. One of the things he pointed out is we are reading through a lens that women are absolutely free to study. And so we read that first sentence, a woman should learn in silence and full submission. That's where we put the emphasis. But he said in that day where women weren't allowed to go to school, they wouldn't have known the, the, the official um, classic language that here we could also read it differently and say a woman should learn. Mary should sit at the feet of Jesus with the men. She should be able to be allowed at that thing. And of course, in full submission and under, I, I, I'm not saying, because God has an order. With everything, he has an order. And man, there's God, there's Jesus. Man submits to him and woman to him. So he's not saying to mess up the order, but he's saying, my goodness, women can go and they can learn. This was also interesting. So there's these two places where there's the trickiness. Women are told to be quiet, to zip it. Can't help but look at the culture of both of these towns. We, we just talked about Corinth where we had the women, the woman cult worship of Aphrodite. Well, guess what's in Ephesus? This letter to Timothy is in Ephesus. You have another woman cult worship center, and it is Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. And in these cults, they were almost cutting edge where women really didn't have rights and they were property and stuff in this world. All of a sudden, these cult worship centers were, were brought up and women would rule the show. The men were to be subservient to the women and they would run everything. So again, what N.T. Wright was believing was happening Let me, let me look, because I want to say this, is that everywhere the gospel went, it, it, it liberated women and it elevated them to be basically have basic human rights. And so what he believes Paul is doing in these two particular towns, we can't take this outside of the context. He's only saying it in Corinth and Ephesus that, hey, women need to be silent and they need to submit under the men and stuff, is that he is saying, hey, women can learn. They can have spiritual gifts. In fact, I want in the service for all of this to happen. But what I'm not saying is for you to, like, they don't have any examples of this. I mean, men have always ruled the show. So the only example they have where women has risen to power is Artemis and Aphrodite. Those are the only two examples. So what he doesn't want is for them to go, oh, okay, we've seen that over here. Yeah, the men fall under subservient to the women and the women run the show. He's So what he's trying to do is balance it out. Women have rights. They should use their gifts. They should be able to learn. But hey, we need to still keep this in balance. Remember, God has an order and there's a man, the man is supposed to be the spiritual covering for the woman, it's really a beautiful thing how God designed it. I love and appreciate that I have a spiritual covering. So I am going to read this how he said it and make sure just for clarity because sometimes my words can be more confusing than scholars. Um, he said it's as if Paul was saying to this tiny brand new Christian movement, because of the gospel, our old ways, our old organized ways of worship have to be rethought. Women can learn and study but what I'm not saying is to follow the examples of the pagan world that has done this. I hope that makes sense. Um, again, well, if, if you, you can agree to disagree. It's okay. You're not going to change my mind and maybe I'm not going to change yours. But for, for people out there that were like, wow, I struggle with this and I don't like Paul. 
when I read this, it's not misogynistic. It's re it really is him saying, hey, women have rights, but you can't cause disorder and disruption in the service, and you can't get out of God's order where men is supposed to be that men are supposed to be the head and we are supposed to fall under their covering. I do want to close with the last segment of the text. Verse 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. So he's saying, hey, if you feel like you have this gift, I'm about to write you something that is from the Lord, not from Paul. But if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid any speaking in tongues. So we started off the chapter. Pursue love, desire, spiritual gifts, above all prophecy. And he closes with be eager to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking of tongues. But everything must be done decently in order. I hope that this challenged all of us today. Maybe there's some of you that have been using the spiritual gifts and it has created chaos and confusion and you need to rethink how you operate in those gifts. Maybe some of you haven't pursued these spiritual gifts at all and you feel convicted and you're going to start pursuing them. Maybe some of you have um, had these gifts and not known how to use them or when is appropriate time. Speak to your leaders. Speak to your pastor. Um, and, and ask like, Hey, how, how do I develop this? What do I do with this spiritual gift? Um, what I know is that God wants them to be used. He wants us to pursue them, but there always has to be order. It cannot be chaos. And women, you don't really have to be silent. Just don't, don't interrupt and cause a commotion in church. Um, this has been fun next week. We'll do 15 and 16. I'm just going to put those together. Paul is very wordy about the resurrection. And so we're going to do a lot of just talking overview about it instead of going verse by verse. And then we'll wrap up the closing in it. It's been a great semester. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'll see you later. Happy reading. Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you're joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and the culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This semester, we are going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and today's episode is chapter 14, and I couldn't decide on a title. It's either Desire Spiritual Gifts or No Girls Allowed. I'll let you pick. Um, this is really a fun chapter um, because I think it challenges us on so many topics, so I'm really excited to dig in. Usually, I read a segment of scripture, and then we break it down, and I read another segment of scripture. Paul gets really wordy in these next few chapters, and so we're not going to do it that way. I will start off reading some of the text, but it's going to be a lot of my commentary on it, and I've trusted that you have just read. Maybe uh, pause it right now, go ahead and reread it, refresh your, your memory, and then let's dig in together. So, this is chapter 14. We've been talking about spiritual gifts for a couple of weeks now. Last week, we talked about the importance above all to have love. You can have all these magnificent gifts that draw in huge crowds and wow the world. But if you don't have love, 
then you have nothing. And and today, um, my study group, we're one chapter ahead. We talked on chapter 15 today. And, you know, everything that we were studying just goes back to we can build our own kingdom with the gifts God given us. And we can all do it under the banner of his name. And all that we do can be burned up on the day of judgment. Or we can operate in love and solely lay down our lives for other people, serve him and him alone, build his kingdom. And on that day, on that day of judgment, every our deeds will be tested in the fire, but they'll get to go on into eternity with us. And that's where I know all of us want to be. So we are continuing our conversation on the gifts. Now, this is a tricky, tricky, tricky t- um, topic. There are some people, I mean, a huge group of people that believe that not all of these gifts are for today, that they ceased. Um, I am not in that camp, and so I'm going to be teaching through the lens that I believe that these gifts are for today, f- up until the last days, until Messiah comes again. And with that, I really, truly believe that there are many, many, many of us, and I put myself in this camp, that I am not pursuing these gifts like Paul is asking in the Corinthian letter. So I am going to start off by reading. Let's just go ahead and dive in. It says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and above all, that you may prophesy. And we're just going to start right here. So pursue love. We spent a long time last week talking about love. This word pursue is to follow in order to catch. Think of a hunter that is determined to catch his prey. That is how we should be chasing after love. But then he goes on to say desire spiritual gifts. And this word desire is a strong feeling of wanting. Um, It's zilu in the Greek. And it means to be deeply committed or to burn with zeal. So there should be this deep burning desire within us to operate in our spiritual gifts. And then he goes on to say, and above all of those that you may prophesy. So I want you to stop here and ask the question. I had to self-reflect and say, do I wake up each day and as I am walking and growing on my Christian walk and digging into the word and praying and and, and dreaming about the kingdom to come, do I have this deep burning desire that I prophesy? And I'm being transparent with you. I don't believe that I could honestly say yes. So this has challenged me, this scripture in the past couple of weeks, meditating on this has challenged me to shift that within me and, and ask the Holy Spirit to begin to cultivate this burning desire that I prophesy. The, the word prophesy, it, it, oh, that, that can be a long message in and of itself, but um, to simplify it, it just means to speak forth, usually foretelling which reveals the mind of God. You are a voice, a mouthpiece for God. And I want us to go back to Peter's first sermon. They had just gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. They're in Jerusalem. And they are celebrating Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. And then Peter gets up with this crazy boldness that we had yet to see. And he preaches his first sermon. And in that sermon, he quotes the prophet Joel. And he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In the last days, prophecy will increase. Dreaming and visions will increase. And so we know that this is something that is going to happen. And now Paul is saying, 
that we should desire above all the other gifts to prophesy. Prophesy in verse three is for the strengthening of the church. This is something that we're going to talk about a little bit over and over and over again in this chapter. The purpose of it, a purpose of it in the New Testament is to strengthen the church. In fact, Paul says that the church is built on the apostles and the prophets. The apostles are the builders, the ones that go in from the ground floor, but they rely on the um, the prophets. They work hand in hand and together. Alone, they don't really accomplish much, but working together. The prophets are explaining or strengthening the church. It's an architectural term. Um, this word uh, prophecy, it's O-I-K-O-D-O-M-E. It's an architectural term meaning building. It builds up the church. Paul saw the New Testament prophets as the ones who would lay that foundation. And he, we really see a shift from the Old Testament into the New Testament as the purpose of the prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament were God's mouthpiece to bring Israel as a nation to repentance. And a lot of times they were speaking warning of coming judgment if they did not repent. Now the role of the prophets switch. They're more in the church and they are giving words to strengthen and to build up the church. So he goes on to say, and I am going to read this and then we're going to just kind of talk for many verses to come. For the person who speaks in another language or in tongues is not speaking to men, but to God, since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to the people for edification or strengthening, encouragement and comfort. The person who speaks in tongues builds himself up, which that's important. But he who prophesies builds up the whole church. I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church can be built. So the speaking in tongues, supernatural language. Um, it, it doesn't edify the whole church because if I broke out speaking in tongues, none of you would know what was going on. My spirit would be lifted up and built up and edified, but you, y'all would just be spectators, not knowing what's going on. But if I prophesied, if I was God's mouthpiece to you to build, all of you could be built up by the words of God. And so he's saying, if I have to put this on a scale, he's not saying that that person that has that gift is better, but he's saying, if I have to weigh the two gifts, pursue prophecy because that helps the whole that the gift of tongues just is going to edify you paul does wish though he does say i wish that everyone spoke in tongues and he includes this because i believe it's human nature that if we hear something oh prophecy is better that we will just go so far on the pendulum we won't find balance but we'll go all in on prophecy and we'll ignore tongues so i don't think that that's what he's wanting to do i think he's saying i want to be balanced but I don't want you to chase after tongues more than prophecy. If you have to chase after one, chase after prophecy because it builds up the whole church. Now he puts a little caveat in there. If you believe that you have a, a, a message that you're going to belt out in tongues is for the church, you better believe that that better have been from God. But I think a lot of people in their personality would it would be necessary for them to feel like this is from God to be able to be bold enough to do that. I know that I'd be scared out of my mind if I felt like I was supposed to in a large congregation belt out in tongues. And then you have to trust and by faith that God is going to give that interpretation to someone else. 
and someone else will actually stand up and give the word of the Lord. So he's saying this, that, that is for the whole body and it will edify the body. And it's, it's really a neat thing. I've been in services, not very often, but a few times in my life where that has happened and it's really cool. In fact, I have a friend that was sharing with me that when she was a young girl, um, somebody spoke in tongues and she understood it, but she was so young and, and you know, like God had never used her in that way. And so she didn't give the prophecy or she didn't give the interpretation and has really always regretted it. And I don't think that uh, God is such a God of grace and mercy, but, um, I just think that's neat that she had the interpretation, but I think even as an adult, I might be a little freaked out and shy that, that would take guts to get out and say the um, interpretation. But how cool, how cool is that for that, that move of God? So he goes on to really talk about the balance. The, the important thing is that we operate in these gifts. I mean, he, he, many, many churches don't pursue the gifts. And he's saying desire these spiritual gifts. And everyone is going to have some sort of spiritual gift and they need to operate within the church because it is good. God gave you that gift to build the church up. And so this needs to be going on in the church and it's not always paid professionals that's going to have this gift. And so we need to allow a space where these gifts can be operated and you can feel free when you're young using your gift to, to be maybe make a mistake, you know? And so we need to allow space for people to practice and develop these gifts. But the problem here is some churches ignore the gift. Like, let's talk about tongues. Paul says, prophecy's better, but I wish everyone spoke in tongues. Some churches completely ignore tongues altogether, and other churches overemphasize it. They put so much um, importance on it, more than the other gifts, and... They will speak in tongues with no interpreter, and that is not edifying the body, and it can bring confusion when unbelievers come in. Paul's going to talk about that later. So again, balance. He does go on to verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in tongues. So here, Hey, I speak in tongues more than any of you. It edifies my spirit. It builds me up, but I save that for my private time. I would rather speak five words to you that built you up than 10,000 in tongues. So then he goes on to say, brothers, don't be childish in your thinking, but infants in regards to evil and adult in your thinking. I kind of wrote in my own words, because sometimes I have to dumb this down for my brain, that Paul's wanting us to be mature in our thoughts, but childlike in our innocence. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah, but this is what I want to talk about. In verse 23, he says, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues and people who are uninformed or unbelievers walk in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? There's something that I do want to address here. We've talked about this many times before, but remember that Paul is writing to a people that are used to, or their, their first um, religion were these mystery pagan religions that came out of Babylon. And this, these mystery religions were steeped in a culture that would have um, static utterances. They would take some sort of substance and they would just spout out things and they would almost like be in a trance and they would shake about. And it was like they were in a drunken stupor. And it was 
the the uninitiated were forbidden to know the secrets of the God. These were all these mystery religions were filled with secret symbols and secret handshakes and secret ways to worship. And the draw was, hey, come be a part of us. Let us initiate you, and then you can gain all this knowledge. Where Christianity is complete opposite. Paul is saying, hey, when these unbelievers come in, I want them to understand. I want them to know everything. This is not a secret. You don't have to be initiated to um, get to the next level of understanding. This is free for everyone who comes in. We want them to feel a part of a family, and we want them to have full understanding of the mysteries of God. It's an opposite kingdom than what the devil presents. So then he really is stressing the order in these church meetings. He says, whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. So the motive behind you using your gift needs to be to build one another up, not to draw attention on yourself. This really stuck out to me because Paul is writing to them like he's just assuming, hey, Someone's going to sing a song. Someone will have a teaching. Someone will have a revelation from the Lord. Somebody's going to speak in a tongue. Somebody else will interpret. Like it is just a given that all these people are going to come in and use their gifts. I don't experience that, but I want to because this is how the church was set up. But this is hard, and I think a lot of that went away because it's just hard to navigate because you're going to have people in their flesh. You're going to, you, you, we all know that person that wants to be heard. <laughs> so my goodness, if, if they're going to be able to operate in their spiritual gift, then they're probably going to just be given words of knowledge everywhere they go. Even if it's not from the Lord, they're going to be motivated to say something because they got attention and notoriety from it. Or, you know, just it, it could create a chaotic atmosphere. And Paul is saying that this needs to happen. These, these gifts need to be used, but there needs to be order. And that's just difficult. And so I think people started shying away from it. And we've gotten used to now one person does the majority of the service, which is the teaching. So these gifts that he's been talking about are to build the church and the bodies of believers, and they must be used with order. There are two key elements that are different from these pagan mystery religions. There's instruction or teaching. So if you went to Aphrodite, you're not getting teaching on Aphrodite. You're just getting a lot of weird ways that she wants to be worshipped. And it's not teaching. But also, you're not getting encouraged when you go there. You're going there and you're doing sinful acts to appease her so that you can reap something in return. Where in the body of Christ, they are getting sound doctrine, they're getting teaching, and they are getting encouragement. This was a new concept. But going back to him saying when you come together, somebody should sing, somebody should give a revelation, somebody should teach, somebody should speak in tongues, somebody else interpret. Enduring Word says this, Paul sees these gatherings of church time as a time for people to come together to give to one another, not merely to passively receive. We have created a culture in church where we just sit and we receive. And that is not the design of the early church. It's not the design of the heart of God. It's all of us pushing ourselves, depending on one another, using our gifts. And it's not just for the paid professionals. Dr. Constable says there's a flexibility about the order of service. So it's flexible. It's not so rigid where it's not like 
you're going on the set of a movie and they say action and there's all these things that are planned out and you cannot veer from the plan. There's flexibility in the service. It was informal enough to allow any member to use their gift. Can you imagine? Informal enough for someone to say, hey, I, um, I think I have a word from the Lord. We have a Bible study that we have been meeting with and we are practicing these things. We're going through the book of Acts. We're, we're really trying to get to the heartbeat of what God intended um, these services to look like. And it's been so fun because our problem isn't disorder where everybody's wanting to do something. Our problem is no one has ever stepped out in their gifts in a service. And so they're a little bit intimidating. And so it's just been so fun to, um, you know, have someone say, hey, I think I'm supposed to say this today. And then everyone will just erupt with um, applaud and encouragement when they actually do step out and use their gift. Again, he wants all of this to be done in an orderly way. And a, a lot of what we're skipping over is him stressing that there has to be order. This cannot be confusing because if unbelievers come in and it's just chaos and no order, how does that build them up? So let's get to the good part. In verse 32, let me go back to 33. He ends that segment by saying, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God is a God of order and stability and peace. So we cannot have these wild, crazy services, but we do need our services informal enough to allow members of the congregation to operate in their gifts. Scary stuff. Challenging, not scary, challenging. Okay, then he goes into saying, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive, says the law, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church meeting. Did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to, or did it come to you only? Wow, this is some pretty harsh words. And Paul is not a fan, or the feminist movement is not a fan of Paul. Here's a couple of things, just in my own reflection before I really dug into studying. In chapter 11 of this very text, Paul talks about women prophesying in the church and how they need to have their head covered if they do so. So this seems like a contradiction. A couple of chapters ago, we're talking about prophesying. And all of a sudden now we're saying women be silent. That does not make sense. We also have to look at scripture as a whole, which we're going to do that today. Um, we can't just read this as a standalone segment of verses and say it trumps everything else. So let's look at scripture as a whole. Also, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm not going to say it. I'm going to wait, and then I'll say it at the end. So we're going to look at the gifts. That, that's one of the things. So it's like Paul has been listing these gifts and saying pursue, and he didn't say men pursue these gifts. He is addressing everyone, and he's saying we need to pursue and desire these gifts. So apostle is one of the gifts. Well, in Romans 16, Paul writes, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow pioneers. They are outstanding among the apostles. Well, that's interesting. Junia 
is outstanding among the apostles. You know what else is interesting? For the past couple of hundred years, Junia has been masculinized. The, um, the translators have turned her name masculine because I think it just solves their problem. When men should be silent in the church, this doesn't make sense. So let's make Junia a man. But if we go back and look at early church fathers and scrolls that have been found since the past couple hundred years, it is clear that Junia is a female. And the early church fathers, um, Christentum, Origen, Jerome, all refer to her as female and an apostle. So we know that females can be apostles. The next, prophets. In Acts 2, in that famous first sermon of Peter that I've already addressed, it says your sons and daughters will prophesy that. I was going to get ahead of myself. That's what I wanted to bring up. So that's interesting. Paul's saying women, when they prophesy, wear something over their head. Peter is saying your sons and daughters in the last day will prophesy. Well, what about women being silent in the church? That is not adding up. In Acts 21, Philip the evangelist has four daughters who all prophesied. That's recorded in Acts. Miriam, which was Moses' sister, is seen to be a prophet. We know that the Jewish people saw her as a prophet because Micah chapter 6 alludes that she is. Deborah, one of the judges, was a prophetess. Isaiah 8 mentions a prophetess that he wanted to go see, and Anna in Luke 2 is a prophet. There are tons of prophetess. Guess what prophets prophetess, prophetic people, what they have to do? They have to speak. They are speaking as a spokesperson for God. We see evangelists in the Old Testament. Phoebe, found in Romans, um, Judea and Sinatiki in Philippians. I probably butchered her name, but in Philippians, there are two ladies that are evangelists. We see pastor teachers in Priscilla. Priscilla in the four out of the six mentions of her name in Paul's letters. She's mentioned first, and that means that she was more influential and had a um, higher standing among the people. And there's the lady of second John. Other ladies in ministry, just in the New Testament, Chloe, Lydia, and Nymph Nymphia, they all hosted a church in their home. So this does not match up with what we are reading. So we have to go do further investigation. One of the things we have to do is ask ourselves, what is going on in this town? Um, there, we already know, was a cult a women's cult, Aphrodite, where there were women priestesses that were running the show. There were men involved, but they were just, they, they follow, they fell under the leadership of the women. So that's interesting. Tuck that in the back of your head. So I recently read a book called The Handmaid, Handmaiden's Conspiracy. It was on this topic. It's written by a woman, and she did an excellent job of finding historical, um, a, a, historical things and biblical things and from early church fathers to write how uh, and explain her take on this verse and it's by Donna Howell if you want to check that out if the, it's a good read but I while I enjoyed that I wanted to go a step further and say what would a biblical scholar like N.T. Wright say very conservative and um I just love him to pieces and so I looked up, I started reading what he, and I actually found a lecture that he was invited to on, um, on this very thing. 
And so a couple of things that he said off the cuff was that um, right, just off his his thinking immediately on what could Paul possibly mean. Well, he knows that Jesus chose 12 men to be his, his main core. He, Jesus had many disciples, but then there were the 12. They were the people that he ate, slept, breathed with for three years on a daily basis. And they all flee. And the disciples that were left, that actually went and found Jesus, they were the first ones to see his resurrected body, were all women. And he said that Mary Magdalene and the others are seen in early church history to be the apostles to the apostles. So the early church fathers had no problem recognizing these women to be the apostles of the apostles. He also said in the Mary Martha story that in the West, you know, we look at it as um, that it's okay. We, as women, we don't have to be so busy in the kitchen. It's okay to rest and spend time with Jesus. He said in the East, them hearing that story, immediately their first thought would have been what a woman is allowed amongst the men to learn that's what they would have seen they would have seen liberation as a woman being allowed to learn and to sit and to take in at the feet of jesus amongst a, a, a slew of men this is mary step, stepping past social conventions so he says he takes this and then everything that I had mentioned, other examples in scripture as a whole to say, okay, this seems to contradict with everything else. So what could be going on? So he ends up talking about two scholars because he said this wasn't his specialty. He was an expert in this, but he did go and prepare and, and, you know, he had his own thoughts, but he wanted to talk about the scholarly work of Gordon Free who writes, and other scholars agree with him, so there's a school of thought that this was this section of verses was later and non-Pauline, and it was an interpolation. It got stuck in the letter later. It wasn't something that Paul wrote. So that could be a, a an idea. I really enjoyed, I'm not saying that, oh, I like this version, so this is what I'm going with, but it, I found very interesting Ken Bailey's work. He wrote an Oxford paper on this. And he explains that in this day, and I'm sure some of you read this, I came across a lot of it, but he tied it together where I could understand it more, is that the men and the women would sit on opposite sides of the room. We used to do that in children's church. Girls on the side and boys on the side. Well, they did that in church. The service would be held in the proper language of the day. And in this culture, the women would not have been schooled or educated in the proper language the services would not be held in the common dialect. So the women typically would only know the common dialect. So it would be as if we went to a service and it was only Latin for a long time. So the men usually were educated and did know the classical language. So I love how N.T. Wright pictures it. Ladies, just imagine with me. We're in a service and the men are on the side and it's all of us. We get to sit together. And the service is going to go on. The teaching is going to go on for an hour, two hours, three hours, and it's all in Latin. What are we going to do? We are going to start talking and we're going to get louder and louder and louder. In fact, I have been at a conference where there was a lot of prayer time in between segments and my small group was the one that kept getting called out. We have bonded so much that we all sat together. I was working it, so I, it wasn't me. <laughs> 
I'm just teasing. But I had to look back and literally, it kind of melted my heart because they kept being shushed. But I was like, look what God has done. He's formed such a family. And when we get together and we love one another, we are going to talk and we're going to get louder and louder and louder. So he said, can you imagine that the leader of the church is going up and having to shush the women because they're talking because they don't understand the language. And so <coughs> this is more the tone that N.T. Wright, and he got that from Ken Bailey, believes that this is, that Paul is saying, hey, ladies, y'all are going to have to be quiet because remember, this whole chapter is about order in the service. We've got to have order. We can't have y'all talking so loud that nobody can hear the pastor. And when you get home, that would be the time that you can talk to your husband. Don't shout across the aisle, hey, Brad, what does that mean? Don't do that. Don't don't do and don't talk to your friends because you're bored. We've got to have order. So when you get home, take a chance, sit down with your husband, and y'all have a little recap. That makes sense to me. This is all about order and not chaos. He goes on, N.T. Wright, and I wrote this direct quote from him that men and women need. He was speaking to a conference on gender equality in the church. And so while he doesn't believe that these certain tricky verses are there to suppress women and that they're not allowed to speak, he also talked about the danger that the women's liberation has come and said, we can do everything a man can do and we can do it better. God so beautifully gave women certain um, mannerisms, characteristics, skill sets, and then he gave men their own and it is to complement each other in such a beautiful way. Eve was Adam's helpmate. It didn't say that she was there, his slave. It was his helper. Don't, don't you love whenever you have to work on a project for you to have somebody that you love to come and help you? And maybe they have a different skill set that, oh, thank goodness they're here. This goes, this blends so perfectly. And so we shouldn't try to be men. We should just embrace our womanhood, but men shouldn't suppress the women. We're, we're equally human. We just have different characteristics and gifts and attributes. And so N.T. Wright said, women and men need to be their own truly created selves to honor God by being what they were created and celebrating it, not blurring the lines. I stand with him. Okay, so then he takes a look at um, another tricky verse found in 1 Timothy. I'm going to read it because I want to find the parallel between the two. There's another place where Paul is telling women to zip it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, it says, oh, he says, a woman should learn in silence with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent. For Adam was created first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Now, I taught this a long time ago, and I don't remember how I taught it. I didn't um, really go back and um, study that. But N.T. Wright brought up this segment as well. One of the things he pointed out is we are reading through a lens that women are absolutely free to study. And so we read that first sentence, a woman should learn in silence and full submission. That's where we put the emphasis. But he said in that day where women weren't allowed to go to school, they wouldn't have known the, the, the official um, classic language that here we could also read it differently and say a woman should learn. Mary should sit at the feet of Jesus with the men. She should be able to be allowed at that thing. And of course, in full submission and under, I, I, I'm not saying, because God has an order with everything. He has an order and man 
there's God, there's Jesus, man submits to him and woman to him. So he's not saying to mess up the order, but he's saying, my goodness, women can go and they can learn. This was also interesting. So there's these two places where there's the trickiness. Women are told to be quiet, to zip it. Can't help but look at the culture of both of these towns. We, we just talked about Corinth where we had the women, the woman cult worship of Aphrodite. Well, guess what's in Ephesus? This letter to Timothy is in Ephesus. You have another woman cult worship center, and it is Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. And in these cults, they were almost cutting edge where women really didn't have rights and they were property and stuff in this world. All of a sudden, these cult worship centers were, were brought up and women would rule the show. The men were to be subservient to the women and they would run everything. So again, what N.T. Wright was believing was happening Let me, let me look because I want to say this. Is that everywhere the gospel went, it, it, it liberated women and it elevated them to be basically have basic human rights. And so what he believes Paul is doing in these two particular towns, he can't take this outside of the context. He's only saying it in Corinth and Ephesus that, hey, women need to be silent and they need to submit under the men and stuff, is that he is saying, hey, women can learn. They can have spiritual gifts. In fact, I want in the service for all of this to happen. But what I'm not saying is for you to, like, they don't have any examples of this. I mean, men have always ruled the show. So the only example they have where women has risen to power is Artemis and Aphrodite. Those are the only two examples. So what he doesn't want is for them to go, oh, okay, we've seen that over here. Yeah, the men fall under subservient to the women and the women run the show. He's So what he's trying to do is balance it out. Women have rights. They should use their gifts. They should be able to learn. But hey, we need to still keep this in balance. Remember, God has an order and there's a man, the man is supposed to be the spiritual covering for the woman, it's really a beautiful thing how God designed it. I love and appreciate that I have a spiritual covering. So I am going to read this how he said it and make sure just for clarity because sometimes my words can be more confusing than scholars. Um, he said it's as if Paul was saying to this tiny brand new Christian movement, because of the gospel, our old ways, our old organized ways of worship have to be rethought. Women can learn and study. But what I'm not saying is to follow the examples of the pagan world that has done this. I hope that makes sense. Um, again, well, if, if you, you can agree to disagree. It's okay. You're not going to change my mind and maybe I'm not going to change yours. But for, for people out there that were like, wow, I struggle with this and I don't like Paul. When I read this, it's not misogynistic. It's re it really is him saying, hey, women have rights, but you can't cause disorder and disruption in the service, and you can't get out of God's order where men is supposed to be, that men are supposed to be the head, and we are supposed to fall under their covering. I do want to close with the last segment of the text, verse 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. So he's saying, hey, if you feel like you have this gift, I'm about to write you something that is from the Lord, not from Paul. 
But if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid any speaking in tongues. So we started off the chapter. Pursue love, desire, spiritual gifts, above all prophecy. And he closes with be eager to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking of tongues. But everything must be done decently in order. I hope that this challenged all of us today. Maybe there's some of you that have been using the spiritual gifts and it has created chaos and confusion and you need to rethink how you operate in those gifts. Maybe some of you haven't pursued these spiritual gifts at all and you feel convicted and you're going to start pursuing them. Maybe some of you have um, had these gifts and not known how to use them or when is appropriate time. Speak to your leaders. Speak to your pastor um, and and ask, like, hey, how, how do I develop this? What do I do with this spiritual gift? Um, what I know is that God wants them to be used. He wants us to pursue them, but... There always has to be order. It cannot be chaos. And women, you don't really have to be silent. Just don't don't interrupt and cause a commotion in church. Um, this has been fun. Next week, we'll do 15 and 16. I'm just going to put those together. Paul is very wordy about the resurrection. And so we're going to do a lot of just talking overview about it instead of going verse by verse. And then we'll wrap up the closing in it. It's been a great semester. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'll see you later. Happy reading. Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and the culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and today's episode is chapter 15 and 16. The resurrection is the foundation, and this is our final episode of the semester. Chapter 15 is an extremely long section, and um, as I study, typically I'll read it in seg sec sections, and then I um, will go to different commentaries and read and add notes as I gain understanding. And after I'm done with my study week, then usually when I wake up in the morning on the following days, I will put on YouTube or a podcast of someone that I like that teaches exegetically verse by verse. And most of the teachers that I follow divided chapter 15 into two one-hour segments. And then they had chapter 16. So that's three hours of teaching and we are going to knock this out in 30 minutes. So what I do want you to understand is we are just peeling back the top layer of the onion. We're not going to go extremely deep, but we are going to talk about some interesting things and um, give us some things to think about. So we're going to just start off with verse one. It says, now brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it, and you have taken your stand on it. You have you were also saved by it. If you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. We're going to stop right there because there's quite a few things we're going to talk about just in this these few verses. First of all, 
um, gospel is mentioned. And the, this word gospel is found 75 times in the New Testament. I want to take a minute here just to talk about what it means. It's the Greek word euangelion. And for us in our world, when we hear gospel, even if you're not in church, if you hear the word gospel, you immediately associate that word as a Christian term, speaking about the message of Jesus. Um, in this... I love how Paul writes. The terminology that he uses is very common ter terminology in their day. So, for example, if you had never set foot in a church and knew nothing about Christianity, when you heard gospel for the first time, it would be in a Christian context. That is not the case to this ancient world. Gospel meant, or euangelion meant good news. And lots of rulers, lots of emperors brought good news when they conquered the known world. In fact, Caesar Augustus had a gospel of salvation that came with peace. And it was a very similar terminology that you read in our gospels. And that can make people squirm because they feel like, well, Caesar Augustus was stealing that about Jesus, but that his message of salvation um, and his message of peace and the good news came before the gospel writers. So they, it's really a cool um, way that they use the language because what they are saying is like, no, he is a false sense of salvation. And they use his exact terminology and they put it on Jesus and saying, this is the real deal. So this word gospel means good news. It's from the Greek word euangelion. And I love a lesson that N.T. Wright um, speaks on this. He was like a, a good way to explain what that would mean to an ancient is that when they heard gospel, they didn't think Christianity or Jesus, they heard, they thought good news. And it was good news in the sense of there's a new king in town and the world will be forever changed. So that is a good working definition of gospel. Now, Paul is saying that our, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the foundation of it is his resurrection. So this entire chapter is about the importance the necessity of the resurrection. So we're going to talk about that today. Um, right off, he he explains how the gospel saves. First, someone must proclaim it. And I love all through scripture that if someone, a human doesn't proclaim it, even the rocks will cry out God's story. You can find God in nature if you go searching for him. Um, but someone must proclaim it and the hearer must receive it. It must be something that your ears are attuned to and you don't just shut it down. You consider it, you, you chew on it, you receive it. And then you have to decide what you're going to do with that. Once you've received it, you're going to mull through and say, is this something I'm going to stand on or am I going to throw it out? So the next, um, the next bit of the process would be for you to stand on it and it would become your foundation for life. And this is what that decision brings salvation. Now he gives a warning here. He says, if you hold to the message, I proclaim to you. Some people would hear the message and you know, the next month they've thrown it out. It, it hasn't affected them in the least, but he's saying, if you hold on to this message, in other words, you are going to abide with Jesus. You are going to apply the things that Paul is teaching to your life. You are going to spend intimate time with Jesus on a regular basis. If you hold on 
to this truth because you know, especially in this day, well, especially in all the days, but in this day, you had the orators and the philosophers that would come to town. And so Paul warns in another letter, don't be controlled by every wind of doctrine. You will be tossed to and fro. You, we have to stand on the word of God so that we are not deceived. And there is a lot of deception. There was in that world. There is in our world. And so we have to stand firm because we don't want Satan to come and pluck the truth of the gospel out of our mind. We have to be sober-minded, and we have to take our thoughts captive, and we have to feed our soul, our spirit man, the truth of God's word. And if we do this, then we will be... Um, I, not only saved, but we will be sanctified. We will grow to look more and more like Christ and old ways will depart from us and we will have discernment in these crazy times. So one of the things that going into the speech that we need to realize is that um, this, he's in Greece, you know, let's remind ourselves of that. And the Greeks did not believe in the resurrection. Um, I talked a little bit about in the introduction that Paul had gone to Athens and they had laughed at him whenever he preached the gospel of Jesus there because they did not believe in the resurrection. This is also a Roman occupied territory. Corinth is occupied by Rome and the Romans didn't believe in the resurrection and neither did the Sadducees, that Jewish sect that that really controlled the temple and um, they were they controlled the Sanhedrin. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And he's saying that this is the foundation of the good news of Jesus Christ. He goes into the gospel story saying that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He's not just saying, oh, this is my message that I'm telling y'all. According to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, interestingly... There wasn't the New Testament. When we read scripture, we read through the gospels and we see, oh yeah, Christ was, he, he died for our sins. He, he was buried and he rose. But this isn't the scriptures that Paul's talking about because they don't have the scriptures. They're living in that, the time that the scriptures are being written. So he's talking about the Old Testament. Well, this was before Jesus, the Old Testament was complete before Jesus was ever even born. So he's talking about over 300 prophecies that were written in the Torah, the first five books of the law of Moses. They were written in the prophets and they were written in the writings, which would have been like Psalms and Proverbs. You can find all of these prophecies that there will be a coming Messiah that will die for our sins and that would be buried and raised on the third day. Now, it wasn't so black and white where it was obvious to people, but if you went and looked after you saw the Jesus was buried and rose at, if, when you go and look all of those scriptures suddenly make sense he also goes on to say not only was it prophesied over 300 times but jesus appeared to peter remember they love peter there some of them are bragging that that they follow peter well jesus appeared to peter and to the 12 so all 12 apostles jesus appeared to and then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time and most of them are still alive in other words go ask these people if you want to know if this is true that jesus really did resurrect there's not just one or two people saying this there are over 500 people his closest friends you can go ask the 12 you love peter you trust him go ask him or any of these 500 people a few have fallen asleep. Some people have died. 
Then it goes on to say he appeared to James. Most scholars believe this is James, Jesus's brother. And then to all the apostles. There were many people who followed Jesus and were helping build the church, and Jesus appeared to them too. Last of all, as one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. So during um, Jesus's time where he rose from the dead, he stayed for 40 days in Jerusalem, appearing to many different people, teaching them, eating with them, and doing all sorts of things. Paul was not a part of this wonderful time um, after the resurrection, but Jesus did appear to him in a miraculous way on the road to Damascus. And so he, that's why he says he's abnormally born. His story is a little bit peculiar compared to everybody else. But the point being, I loved that, um, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'll save that quote later. But the point being was this was not just some crazy fictitious story. There were eyewitnesses that would bear testimony to these sightings. Um, one of the things that I had written from um, one of, I guess, maybe probably David Gusick. I'm not sure. I didn't write down where I got it from. But this isn't some crazy myth like the other gods had. The other gods, the little G gods, they had these crazy stories. This is in the time that Paul's writing this letter, this recently happened. There are eyewitnesses, and many people can testify to this. He um, talks about the gospel story saying that sin first separated us from God, and because of that, the death of an animal could cover, not take away, but could cover sin for a season of time. But only a human life could pay the ultimate price for sin. And that's what Jesus did. He was fully human. It took a human to pay this price. And this was prophesied in Isaiah 52. He was buried. This shows that Jesus was fully human and he wasn't just a spirit pretending to be a human. He was 100% human. Isaiah 53, 9 talks about this. And then he was raised. And I told you all through the New Testament where you could find those scriptures. It's interesting that he includes on the third day he rose. Looking back, I know that Paul's making the connections with so many stories in the Old Testament where Jesus was using that story as a foreshadow of in three days he would raise Jesus. There's a story, I'm not going to go through all of them, but in 2 Kings 20 verse 8, we'll actually read verses in chapter 20, 2 Kings, read 1 through 8. But there is a story that you can look and it's paralleling um, Jesus's resurrection. Three days is mentioned there in Hosea 6, the same thing. Jonah in the belly of a well. He's in the belly of a well for three days. And then I think a beautiful picture of this is with Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is asked to sacrifice his son. Um, this, this, you know, we when we read it, we just think, <gasps> and he just obeyed. This practice was common in the pagan world. They literally would sacrifice their children in the fires of Moloch. So, and we know that Abraham came from Mesopotamia. He was a pagan um, person. And so hearing this wouldn't have been so crazy as um, it was, um, as it is for us. But nonetheless, there is a promise that Abraham would be a father to to a people, a great nation, and through his son Isaac. So that's taking some faith because that's not making sense. If I kill my son, if I sacrifice my son, how am I going to be a great nation? But the word in the in um, the scripture says 
that they traveled for three days to get to Mount Moriah. So in essence, in Abraham's mind, for three days, his son was dead. His son was dead to him because he knew he was going to have to sacrifice him. And then he, at the last second, God provided a way. So he was raised to life again. In fact, all of this happened on Mount Moriah, which would have been the exact same mountain that Jesus was sacrificed on. So just neat connections in scripture. Um, so, I, oh, this is the quote that I wanted to say. He, This is whenever he went on to say, hey, there's all these people that you can ask. They're still alive today. Um, it that, that one of the commentators that I used said, this didn't take big faith. For them to believe in the resurrection, it didn't take big faith like it does for us today. It was just due diligence of their research. That's all it took. Hey, if, if you want to know if this is true or not, take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and ask the people, are there traveling missionaries that are coming through all the time? Ask one of them. They would have been eyewitnesses. Do your research. One of the interesting things that I wanted to add, we talked about this in my um, study group and um, some, some of my partners were like, huh, what, what, what reading through. Um, the first time I went through Matthew, I remember, you know, going verse by verse. I, Matthew was my favorite book. I had just skimmed through it many times, but I was just dissecting. It was my first Bible nerd, um, study. And when I got to chapter 27, my mind was blown. In verse 50, it says, Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. He's on the cross at this point. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. This is talked about all the time. What's next is never talked about. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Dead people, dead people were raised from the dead and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. So not only do is there are hundreds of people that have eyewitness testimony of seeing Jesus, you could go to Jerusalem in this day. The Corinthians could travel to Jerusalem and have conversations with many people of how they saw their ancestors and loved ones after they had been buried. Just craziness, craziness. So this didn't take a lot of faith in this day. It just took a little bit of research. We're already 15 minutes in and it, we're on verse nine. So let's fly. Um, he goes on to say, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not ineffective. Paul always takes this very humble approach. He doesn't think he's someone special. He's very humbled by the fact that he used to kill God's dear, dear children. And by God's grace, God revealed his son Jesus to Paul and now is using him. And he's saying, so his grace is ineffective. Um, remember, Paul came to them, chapter 2, in weakness and trembling. Um, he's just as humble as can be. But I love just... A thought that I had is that he is telling them that God's grace covers repentant hearts. And we know the Corinthians have made a lot of mistakes. And he's saying, hey, if his grace can cover me ineffectively, it can cover all of your sins. And um, his grace will not be ineffective. And so God is looking for repentance. And he urges them to keep believing. Then he goes on to talk a lot about defending this belief of resurrection because it seems like in this day 
that they were grasping the truth of the gospel, but then they were still denying that other people would be resurrected. And he's saying, well, if Jesus was human and he was resurrected, then you have to believe in resurrection. You can't, you can't take pieces of the story. It has to be all true to have its power. So, um, Without Christ's resurrection, there would be no forgiveness of sins. That's where the power lies. It also, Jesus also conquers death and the curse. Like the whole thing in the Garden of Eden was, oh, now you have to get out of Eden and you will die. Your body will die. You will not be able to be mortal and live forever. And so the whole purpose of Jesus, not only was it to restore our soul so that we could be made right and be able to return to Jesus, but it was also to conquer death. He was going to win victory over death. So part of that restoration was not just to redeem our soul, but it was to redeem our bodies. Our bodies, unfortunately, many, most of humanity will die. But through that relationship with Jesus, you will be resurrected into a glorified body. That is defeating death. It's like this loophole. Death thinks that it has us, but then ta-da, we get a glorified body. Um, we, um, without the belief of the resurrection, you have a powerless gospel. The, the, the fact that Jesus conquered death is where the power lies. He can't save us without conquering death. Um, we're going to talk in a little bit about what these glorified bodies are like. There is life after death. We will be face to face with God and we will be in a glorified body. And it's not a spirit body. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus never rose. And the gospel that they preach makes them all liars. And Jesus doesn't have power over death. Therefore, you can never be saved. So we would just all be pitiful if there was no resurrection. He goes on to say, but Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Many scholars, um, I got this out of the Jewish New Testament commentary, but then I found back up. They believe that Paul was writing this between Passover and Pentecost, which would have been the season of first fruits, where all the Jewish people would have brought their offering, the very first of the harvest. They would have waved it um, like the sheaths of, of wheat. They would have waved it before the Lord. They would have offered it as a sacrifice. And it was a way to say, this is yours, Lord God, and we know that you will bring in a full harvest. God guaranteed a full ripe harvest if they would sacrifice and give their first fruits to him. And Paul is seeing that Jesus' death and resurrection is a picture of this, that he was the first to die and rise, but that there will be a great harvest coming where all believers will rise and be resurrected. And just like Jesus guaranteed the harvest, a full harvest, like a tangible harvest here on earth of, of the wheat and the grains, he is guaranteeing that this will be true of our lives. He goes on to say, really, if none of this were true, then why am I dying to myself every day? Why am I being shipwrecked and beaten and, and sacrificing so much if this isn't true? If this isn't true about the resurrection, I'll just eat and drink and be married. Be married, not married. <laughs> I'll eat, drink, and be married. And some people, um, he, he has a curious verse here in 27. He says, otherwise... What will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If they are dead and not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Um, this is um, 
A curious verse for most scholars. There's been many attempts to interpret this packet, this this verse. One of the things that I read that I felt was very interesting was that in the next town over from Corinth, there was a mystery cult there that actually had this practice of baptizing alive people for the um, in place of the dead, so that their um, the dead could experience some sort of afterlife. Um, and so it could be that, of course, since this is part of the pagan culture, that the Christians have embraced this and thought, oh, well, we're baptized, so let's start baptizing ourselves on behalf of our fallen ancestors. Paul isn't condoning this. He's just saying if you're not going to believe in if you're not going to believe in resurrection, then why are you practicing this baptizing um, people for the dead? So part of them believed in the resurrection where there was a part of them that didn't. And he's saying, hey, let's be all in on this belief of the resurrection. If not, it has no power and it's pointless. Even sacrificing yourself for the gospel if there is no resurrection power. Paul goes on in verse 36 to use the example of agriculture sowing a seed into the ground because he, he figured that people would ask, how are we raised? What kind of body um, will we have? And they will have these certain questions. And so he uses a picture of agriculture that the farmer, he doesn't know how all this works. He just takes a little seed. He puts it into the ground. He buries it in the grave. And God creates this miracle and resurrects the seed into something mighty and beautiful and glorious. He'll, he's going to do the same to us. We put our bodies in the ground. We don't know how it works, but God resurrects our body and we have a glorified body. If we look in Luke 24, after Jesus' resurrection, it gives us a, a pretty clear picture of what life is going to be like. First of all, Jesus appears to them and they think they're seeing a ghost. And he puts out his hands and says, touch me. I am flesh and bone. So our glorified body isn't this spirit body like we're a ghost going around. Our glorified body is flesh and bone. It, um, it will eat and consume. Jesus is hungry and he sits down and has fish and honeycomb with them. He could vanish though. So his body wasn't restricted to this three-dimensional world that we know. He could come and go, appear, go, show up in a different place. We also know that he could look like himself, but in other times he was unrecognizable to people. So this glorified body is flesh and bone. It will eat. It, 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 it's like a supercharged. It's 2.0 in our lives. My husband is home. <laughs> oh, we'll keep going. So then it goes on to say, brothers, I tell you, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God and corrupt, um, corruption cannot inherit corrupt incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you this mystery. This is the part I want to get at. It says, we will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the blink of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpeter will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. He, he tells us before this, listen, I'm telling you a mystery. Remember, we've talked quite a bit about the mystery cults um, in this day, and many of them took initiation for you to learn their secrets. They wanted 
this stuff to be secret. You had to go through crazy initiations to gain this knowledge. And Paul is saying, look, I'm telling you the mystery. This is something free. We don't keep it secret because what's secret is often wicked. You know, like sin will be um, put it done in darkness, but Jesus brings things to light and he's saying, hey, you don't have to do some kind of crazy initiation. This is a free mystery I'm given to you that we will not all fall asleep. Paul, I think, believed that he could possibly experience the coming of Jesus and that he wasn't going to have to die. That's how we should look towards Jesus. This isn't a good example. All through scripture, it is um, written for us to expect Jesus's second coming, to anticipate it, to await it. Um, that's really what Advent is about. And so we need to live like Paul. Let's expect that Jesus is coming back in our day and let's live our lives accordingly. So he's saying not everyone will, will die, but whether you have died or whether you just get to go be with him, we will all get this glorified body. It's going to happen very fast in the moment, in the blink of an eye, you will hear a trumpet. The trumpet sound was always a warning that something big was happening in the realm of the, the Lord. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. So the dead will rise first. We talked about this quite a bit last semester in first Thessalonians chapter four. I'm going to go and just reread. We, we had a lot of language here that we had to interpret. Let's see. I'm going, I'm going to be in chapter four and I'm going to start in verse 15. It says, for we say this to you by revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with that trumpet sound, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. So here we see that when he does return and we hear the trumpet sound, that the, the people that are in the grave are going to resurrect first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I am not going into deep detail about this, but you can go back to that podcast Um. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I really break down the Greek in this, and it appears just like an emperor would come to a city. All the people would hear because there would be trumpets blowing, and so um, they would run out of the city to meet him in the place where the graveyards were. So there were the, there was the dead. They, they got to see him first. The rest of the people would come out, and then they would escort him to the city altogether um, to, to show them what they've done with the city due to a generous gift that he had given them. And so it's a really interesting um, take on what is happening here. So um, when Jesus comes back, we are going to meet him. Whether we're dead or we're alive, we're going to meet him in the sky. And then many people believe that this is what the rapture is. Now, I am not one that know when the rapture is going to happen. I cannot stand firm that it's going to be before the tribulation. I just know that when we do go, we are coming back down to this earth, whether there's seven years that pass or whether it happens instantly. I don't know. I don't care because I just trust God's plan is going to be awesome and I'm here for it. But 
we will end up returning down to this earth and there will be from revelation 20 tells us that there will be a thousand year reign there will be we will live on earth as it should have been with jesus in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years is this a literal thousand years or is this some sort of um speak that is just an illustration of something i don't know i tend to think that it's going to be a literal thousand years but if i'm wrong who cares jesus plan is perfect after that thousand years in revelation 21 we see that death and hades are going to be thrown into the lake of fire this is when it will be complete the last thing that jesus has to do is completely destroy death and Hades. Do you find it interesting that it says Hades will be thrown in the lake of fire? So this is two different things. Um, we tend to, because our Bibles translate it that way for us, we tend to clump the lake of fire and Hades and hell and Gehenna is this all one place, which would be hell. But that these words all have a little bit different meaning. They are all negative, but Hades is different than the lake of fire. And there will be a time where death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. Then there will be a new heaven and earth. The heaven and earth that we know now will be destroyed. This is from Revelation 21. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. I have to read in Revelation because sometimes talking about this can scare people and I don't want anyone to be scared. I want us to be filled with hope. So I'm reading from Revelation 21. talks about the new creation. Um, this is John saying, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. Emmanuel, God with us. This is what's going to be happening on that new earth after the thousand year reign. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. It's going to be in the lake of fire. Grief, crying, pain will exist no longer because that is all attached to death because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the front throne said, look, I am making everything new. Now there's a lot more goodness here in this chapter, but we are going to skip to chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the broad street of the city. The tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit and producing fruit in every month. The leaves of the tree are healing the nations, and there are no longer any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his slaves will serve him, and, he, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist, and people will not need lamp, shot, lamp light or sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Guys, God's plan is amazing. We need to just stick with it. Paul is encouraging these people to 
stand firm. He said it in the last chapter, and he's going to encourage this them in this coming chapter. I'm going to fly through 16. We'll wrap this up in five minutes. Paul closes with issue number five, talking about money. Remember, this was um, a discussion. It seemed like there were some people that went and found him in Ephesus. They were discussing some problems in their church in Corinth, and Paul writes a letter to the church of Corinth and returns it with them. The Jewish communities all over the Roman Empire were sending money during this time to Jerusalem. Um, if you um, remember in Acts, Antioch, um, in Antioch, there was a prophet, Agabus, who speaks of a coming famine. People started sending money to Jerusalem because most of the employment in Jerusalem was related to the temple. And once they were a Christian, they are not getting employment in the temple. So there wasn't a lot of employment there for the mother church, but there are so many, I mean, there are so many people in this church. Remember we read in Acts something beautiful, the people start selling their land and selling their things and pulling this money into a pot so that they can all share. Well, other churches all over the Roman empire are continuing because surely that money has dried up by now and they're helping fund this church in Jerusalem. Um, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, and he wants us to live by this principle. He wants the Corinthians here to live in, by this principle. Every man should give what you decide in your heart, not reluctantly. So not, oh, here's $10, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. He wanted them to give freely out of the kindness of their heart. Paul also tells them that he's going to be traveling through and would like to stay with them for the winter but the Lord is opening doors, so he's going to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be flexible. He always is, but his desire is to stay with them. He ends up telling them, but if I send Timothy, if you get Timothy, he is like-minded. We have equal souls is the Greek word. Like he and me are one. Not, not physically, but he's just saying we have the same heart. We have the same spirit. Our souls are intertwined for the kingdom. So if you get him, it's just like getting me. This is a rare thing. Um, he mentions Pentecost here. We see that through these mentionings of the first fruit and Pentecost, that Paul very much is still practicing the festivals because he's Jewish. He doesn't give up his Jewishness and all of those festivals are foreshadowed to understand all of the work that Jesus did in his first coming and will do for his second coming. He says here, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be brave and be strong. Your every action must be done in love. This is such an important message for the church today. For the church today, we need to be looking back. Come, Lord Jesus, that Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's anticipate his coming, and we have to be alert because I am telling you, this world is sending all kinds of crazy messages to get our eyes off of Jesus and to believe these false mystery religions from Babylon. Revelation, I, this is not crazy, Carrie. This is Revelation speaking of this. So we have to be alert. We have to stand firm in our faith, and that going to church and listening to one hour message is not going to cut it. That is not enough. We have to stand firm. We have to get in the word and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to teach us and to give us discerning eyes and ears. Be brave. That is actually translated, act like a man, talking about warriors. We are to be brave during this time. We're not going to be fear, fearful. Our hope, our faith, our trust is going to be in Jesus and we need to be strong. But everything we do, act in love. So in the, as, as days get crazy, we are to do all of these things, but not to be all of a sudden thinking about ourselves. You know, 
say there's our neighbors need food. We're not going to hoard our food. It, you know, it's each man for himself. No, we're going to operate in love. And so in this, he ends up telling them his last message. This greeting is in with my own hand, Paul. So he writes this last sentence in such a labor of love. A lot of people think that his eyesight, he has a disease or something in his eyes. He always has people um, scribing his letters for them. But sometimes just as an act of love, he wants to say, hey, I have one last thing for you and I'm writing this. Like, so hold dear to this. If anyone does not love, remember, we just talked about all the gifts that we're supposed to operate in, but love has to be the motivating factor. The Lord, a curse be upon him. That word is an, an, ananthema. It's a Greek word. And it was the third level of discipline in the Jewish culture. If you did something that was a breaking of a serious rule, then you would have to be separated from the synagogue and family and community for 30 days. If you did not repent after that, then there was harsher punishments. Remember, honor, shame, society. The third level of this discipline would have been an anathema. It was a, a no reconciliation or repentance would be allowed. You would be cut off, no longer allowed in the synagogue or even seen as a Jew. So the last thing Paul says is if you are not acting in love, then I'm skipping step one and two, anathema to you. You will be cursed. You will no longer be allowed to be in this community. We will not see you as a brother or sister. That's how important love is. And then he says, Maranatha, that is, Lord, come, Lord, come. The grace of Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Thank you for sticking with me through this. We have a lot in common with the Corinthians. And so there was so much that we could pull from, even though their culture is so much different than ours, there was still so much to extrapolate. And I will, we will be taking a break. Um, we usually take a break for the last two weeks in December, and then we start working behind the scenes in January. We'll kick off a new study in February. I'm praying right now if that is going to be 2 Corinthians or if we are going to do um, a completely new study just wherever the Lord um, takes us. So be praying with us, and we would like your feedback. Give us feedback on what you would like to study, and we will see you next year. Happy reading.